0: The, the worry with the bill, aside from what I think are just the really bad from a liberal perspective effect on on speech and privacy and security, is what it will do to business, which is I think it's will just make it more expensive um, it will empower market incumbents uh, who have more lawyers and engineers than God and will be able to comply with this they they will complain about it but you know we saw of gdpr right that that big market incumbent from California, especially um, did um, have raised concerns and did have um, issues with it, but have thrown a lot of resources into compliance that smaller market players don't have. Um, so one of the ironies of this bill, I think, is that many of its supporters um, criticize big tech a lot, but don't seem to appreciate that they are also the best positioned um, market players to comply with it once once it does become law.
1: This week, British chip designer ARM confirmed plans to reject a listing on the London Stock Exchange in favor of the New York's NASDAQ in what has been expected to be the biggest US IPO in nearly two years. This marks a failure by British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak, who was trying to persuade the owner of ARM, SoftBank, to list in London. Meanwhile, the government is pursuing a range of new regulatory efforts in the digital space, from online safety to digital competition, and even the future of AI. This is raising concerns that despite the UK's place as the favoured tech space in Europe, that is potentially the government's anti tech agenda will leave that behind. Welcome back to the IEA podcast. I'm Matthew Lesh, the Director of Public Policy and Communications here at the IEA. Each week, this podcast asks a tantalising policy question to a top policy thinker. Today's question is the UK over regulating tech? To discuss, I'm very excited to be joined by Matthew Feeney, who's the Head of Tech and Innovation at the Centre for Policy Studies. He was previously the Director of the Cato Issues Project on Emerging Technologies and has written quite extensively on all sorts of different tech-related projects and issues, um, including in places like the New York Times and the Washington Post. Welcome to the podcast, Matthew. Thanks for having me. Let's start with this immediate news around ARM. So it's not, obviously not entirely clear why they made this decision or, or, you know, even a specific policy. But it does sent tend to signal something about the state of the UK's tech sector that it, it's not necessarily a place where they want to stay in the UK when they go into that final listing stage mm-hmm.
0: well I, I think it's the latest example of um, the, the the government's rhetoric not matching a, a, a lot of its actions it's all it's all fine for for the government to have a very pro-innovation and pro-tech rhetoric uh, but I think it, it, oftentimes we're not actually seeing the technology sector react in a way that's uh, uh, consistent with that um, kind of messaging uh, I think as, as people who work in tech policy we, we can um, sit back and appreciate that the government um, has is saying the right sort of things, is saying it's pursuing poli- a policy agenda that uh, they, they want to to um, have stimulate growth and innovation. But how the private sector is reacting and a lot of the regulation and legislation they're putting forward seems to be at odds with that.
1: Well, indeed, even when they talk about, I suppose, pro-innovation or, or, or pro-liberalising um, uh, measures, that there's often very slow carry-through. So the most immediate case study here, of course, is the government's talked about um, liberalising listing rules post Brexit, and the, the the rhetoric is very high in terms of oh, this is going to attract all these new businesses to the UK. It's going to ensure that startups list on the stock market. Well, even if the rhetoric has been fine, the actual policy detail isn't necessarily that impressive. And then the actual even that policy detail tends to be, it tends to be very slow, um, before any of that actually comes to light. So you want to these you know the government talks a big game is anything actually happening. Um, and then in reverse that, you see you know, the regulators, and I think the best recent example of this, kind of heading in the opposite direction, which is the, the competition market authority's decision to reject Microsoft's attempt to uh, acquire Activision Blizzard. Now, there's a whole lot of complex competition arguments you can make around this, um, but the fact that in the end, the US courts have approved this merger, uh, and so did the EU, and the UK is now pretty much the only global um, uh, jurisdiction where this, was rejected. I mean, that also is the kind of thing that sends a negative signal.
0: Oh, it absolutely does, and I think uh, you you had the the CEO, I think it was of Activision, saying this is just the UK putting up a you know not open sign or something to that effect. Uh, and it's not just um, the Microsoft Activision deal. Uh, last year, we had uh, the CMA also um, make a ruling regarding uh, Facebook's uh, purchase of Jiffy, uh, and unfortunately that this this trend is off-putting to global investors and global companies seeking to, to establish a, a home in the UK uh, and you know, the, the CMA is not just previous rulings I think um, that that should worry us but also uh, legislation that's been considered by Parliament uh, the digital markets uh, competition bill uh, it, and this, this again is, is a difficult um, issue I think for the government to, to, to handle because on the one hand it wants to ensure that uh, the, the UK is open for business and that tech does come here. But there seems to be um, endless regulatory and legislative um, headaches for, for business seeking to do business here. Yeah.
1: Well, let, let's get into that then. So we've, we've really had these kind of recent signs that things aren't so great for UK tech um, under the existing regulatory policy framework. We've now got a bunch of new reg- regulations coming o- on track. Um, the, you've just mentioned, and we'll go into that first, the Digital Markets and Competition Bill. So this is this is the CMA basically saying we think the existing competition regime, even though we are using it more extensively, isn't enough to deal with big tech companies because big tech companies are monopolists. They have too much market power. They um, act as, in, in practice, barriers to entry for newer, smaller firms. They, um, in some way, therefore, that is bad for consumers, although it's kind of hard to really identify where that. Um, badness is. What do you make of that general overall case for we need a lot more competition regulation and therefore it's the, what you you know, you know might or I might say something like you know, I think this goes too far but is there some kind of underlying justification here?
0: Well it's a good question because uh, when, when thinking about competition policy I, I, my personal belief is that you should take a look at what, what's the effect on the market and how's it harming consumers and what's interesting about digital markets is that oftentimes when people mention um, a phrase like that, they think of big California based um, big tech companies. Uh, and there, you know, I think there are a lot of people that have criticisms of these companies and uh, for, for a whole host of reasons. But I actually think it's difficult to isolate very specific kinds of harm that would justify the kind of regulation we're seeing here. Uh, you mentioned uh, the US and the EU. I think it is important to, to highlight that. This bill would give the CMA a degree of power that regulation authorities and many other possible just don't have. Uh, at least in in the U.S., for example, the the CMA equivalent, the FTC, um, has to argue in a court, right, that they um, uh, have um, that they're pursuing the right kind of case, uh, and it's especially difficult because even though the, the the there are plans to build the digital markets unit, which will be in the the CMA handling this sort of thing, uh, th- this is a very nimble, dynamic uh, kind of market where there are new ideas coming all the time. Uh, it it seems to me that you know, we, we shouldn't be treating um, or thinking about competition in digital markets the same way some people think about it in uh, steel or oil or, or commodity goods. Uh, this is a, a kind of market that requires a degree of flexibility and I don't think the the CMA's approach to it is going to reveal or um, show that at all.
1: Yeah, I mean, what I find quite striking is that the premise of a lot of this work comes from a Furman review, it comes from some CMA work where they effectively say we think Facebook's a monopolist um, or, or has lock-in power over social media um, and then we think Google has lock-in power over search. Now in the last 12 months or the very least last few years we've seen a lot of that those kind of key markets be challenged. It kind of says yeah. that it's a lot more mm-hmm. dynamic. We have in social media, TikTok is the the big rising social media power. Facebook is very much on the down. Mm-hmm. And on in the um, search space, of course, you have the rise of ChatGPT, AI chat belts, and Bing as a, as a response in some ways to Google, and Google kind of falling behind. That tells you that they don't quite actually have this monopolistic power that has been um, asserted to justify this whole regime.
0: Oh, absolutely. There, there's much more competition than I think people uh, realize. And actually, only in the last few months, it's been interesting to to um, to reflect on my own use of of the internet. Thing I actually am using, you know, Chat GPT for queries I previously would have used for a search engine. Uh, but the, the talk of monopoly, I think, is important because uh, I I do think that social media, especially, highlights how um, difficult it is to regulate these sort of companies like the traditional companies. Um, so. Uh, people talk about there being a social media market, but there really isn't in the way people think of other markets. Uh, No one watching us has ever received a bill for their monthly Twitter use, right? (laughs) There's a there's a market for digital advertising. And every pound that someone spends advertising their goods on Google is a pound they're not spending on Facebook or Twitter. And um, those. so these companies do actually compete. But I think because most of us are users, not advertisers, we perceive it in a way that isn't necessarily accurate.
1: Yeah, it, it seems like these, they, they're big companies, but they're competing across a lot of different verticals with all sorts mm-hmm. of different companies. So it's, it is a far more competitive space than, than is often made out to be. So the government's response, though, is that I think they would largely reject that kind of analysis and say that you know these these are exercising too much power, and then their response to that is rather than you know try to do use traditional competition powers, which is to identify consumer harm and intervene in the market in a way that would be pro-competitive, they're creating a a whole different type of regime where the CMA will be able to come in and quite almost arbitrarily say we don't think that you're. Um, acting in an appropriate way here in, in, in some way that you've designed your product. For example, we, we think it's inappropriate that Amazon is showing that uh, Amazon orders or Amazon suppliers first or Amazon goods first before other goods, and we want you to stop doing that. So it's very like micro interventions in, into the nature of these businesses. And then something I think you kind of alluded to here as well is the fact that those interventions will only be contestable on, on a relatively low standard, the judicial review standard. So you're giving, you can't go to a court To Mm -hmm, say, mm -hmm. I think you've got your facts wrong here. Actually, there are a lot of consumer benefits to the kind of behaviour that I'm doing. You know, we have, if Amazon can't go in and say, we actually think the reason why we show fulfilled by Amazon um, products first is because we can guarantee the quality of the delivery because we're delivering them ourselves. They can't say that there's like a consumer reason they've done it. Um, They can't really push back on the facts of the matter in like a full merit review. So it just seems kind of extraordinary that you're giving all this power to the, the CMA. And then you have to think, what is going to be the response to tech companies to this? Like, does this mm-hmm. make the UK a place you want to invest into um, and create new products and do new things? Mm-hmm.
0: Well, I, I wouldn't blame anyone who um, works outside the UK and is interested in um, investing in technology or, or moving or, or growing to, to treat the UK with caution if something like this were to pass. Uh, because I, I think the lack of a, a robust review system um, should be quite frightening to investors, actually. I think, well... It's, it makes your your investment potentially much more risky than it would be in other jurisdictions, mm. uh, and and also it, it, think about if something like this had been in place before um, Google decided to get into mapping or before Amazon wanted to start building its own smart speaker, right? This would be um, much more of a costly business decision with something like the the Digital Market Competitions Act because. Uh, the, this is all doing stuff with, uh, with, with data and it's all something they would have to consider. And as you mentioned earlier, you know, it, it, it is not, um, accurate now to think about Amazon as the online shop or Google as the search engine. These are, you know, companies are doing much, much more than that. And, um, I think as consumers, we all benefit with, um, large market, um, players competing with each other across a range of services. It gives us a nice, um. Uh, selection of products to pick from
1: yeah and I think the risk here which is what we've kind of seen recently which is when uh mecca decided to launch into a new vertical by with threads competing against twitter they of course didn't launch them into the eu mm-hmm. and a major reason for that you know, is understood to be related to these the, the um eu's equivalent competition regime as well as um gdpr and, and and data concerns so that alone tells you well what things in future will not be launched in the uk by these um, companies because they're fearful of offending the CMA. Like what what features are going to be lost out to UK users? Because that's where this, that's where really, no, I, I, I think as um, you know, policy people we, we don't care necessarily about the failure or success of Meta or Google or whatever. We care about what consumers get, and if consumers mm, get mm-hmm. less, um, that's that's quite worrying.
0: It is. Yeah,
1: um, I think it's probably another issue uh, that's. Uh, I know you've spent a lot of time, and I've spent a lot of time on. Of course, is the online safety bill. Mm-hmm. Um, another major piece of. Um, uh, legislation. I, I took the latest look at it. I think it started when legislation was first introduced as around 225 pages, mm-hmm. which is a very long piece of legislation. It's now gone over 300 pages in the latest um, version. Now, what is the government doing with this online safety bill? Well, it, it seems quite extraordinary um, in the first place. Now, you can understand the good intentions of trying to protect children and trying to make the internet a safer place. Um, but it does seem like there's, in the process, putting aside the kind of privacy and free speech issues that raises for a moment. A lot of regulatory burden going on here.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, uh, well, I, like you said, I've been spending quite a bit of time on it. Um, and I have uh, <laughs> uh, written elsewhere uh, about a lot of the, the, the privacy and free speech issues, but I think there is also a very big threat to, uh, to British businesses and making the UK look attractive um, to uh, foreign tech companies that might want to open up shop here or invest here. Uh, and that's for, for a host of reasons. You know, I think it would take two or three, a, a podcast series to do the whole yeah. online safety bill, but I'll just mention that the, the, the bill imposes a range of obligations on um, online organizations and firms. Um, not just big tech, right? This is not just a big tech bill, but would affect tens of thousands of businesses, um, even those that have nothing to do with social media or, or search. Uh, and would impose obligations on them to uh, issue you know, risk assessments, to monitor content, uh, and yeah, you know, to do a whole host of of other things. Transparency. So transparency. And, um, fraudulent advertising. Um, the list goes on, and it's yeah. basically
1: any site that does user to user interaction. So any kind that's of dis- right. if if you're a Mumsnet and you host a discussion forum, you are very much covered by this bill.
0: Yes, absolutely. Uh, and yeah, like you said, so that that that's uh, the, I think a good example of the kind of. Um, organization that people don't think would be covered. They just think about um, you know, Instagram or YouTube, but actually, um, it would be a lot. Uh, and the 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 worry with the bill, aside from what I think are just the really bad, from a liberal perspective, effect on, on speech and privacy and security is what it will do to business, which is I think is will just make it more expensive. Um, it will empower market incumbents uh, who have more lawyers and engineers than God and will be able to comply with this. They they mm. will complain about it, but you know we saw with GDPR, right? That that big market incumbent from California, especially, um, did. Um, have raised concerns and did have um, issues with it, but have thrown a lot of resources into compliance that smaller market players don't have. Um, so one of the ironies of this bill, I think, is that many of its supporters um, criticize big tech a lot, but don't seem to appreciate that they are also the best positioned um, market players to comply with it once once it does become law.
1: Yeah, I think this is a, this is a fascinating fact. You're creating a, a huge set of obligations to deal with, you know, just one, one example here is, um, you have to do uh, an assessment of the potential impact of your platform on children, um, and there's a whole, there's about a list of about 15 different things you have to consider, mm-hmm. and their kind, their of, their characteristics um, across different ages, uh, different design features of your platform. The list goes on and on and on. Now, if you're a smaller platform and you look at this, you can be like, "Oh my goodness gracious, mate! How am I possibly going to comply with with this with this? But what is it? What is it going to cost me to get mm-hmm. in the kind of expert on child?" Um, uh, safety features um, if you're a small platform in the UK you, you're probably going to be tempted either to block um, British children by doing some kind of age verification or you're just basically going to shut up shop and certainly if you're a small um, offshore platform it doesn't necessarily have a big user base and doesn't really make that much money in the UK um, why would you bother operating in the UK if you've got to fulfill all these kind of regulatory requirements?
0: Absolutely. Uh, I mean, the government's argument would be what they made a few months ago was, well, we've dropped worrying about um, content for adults, you know, the, this, this famous legal but harmful content. The problem is that when you're talking about online firms dealing with the content at scale we're thinking about, so, for example, 500 hours of video uploaded to YouTube per minute, You know, billions of Facebook comments every week, uh, if you have an obligation to protect children, especially from particular categories of content, you either are going to have to find out more uh, information about who's using your platform, which is more surveillance, age verification, that sort of thing, or you're just going to take down any content that might be harmful to children and assume everyone on the Internet is a child, um, which is you know not good for liberal liberal uh, free speech values. Uh, but I, I think, to your point, um, age verification earlier, I mean, that, that raises a very creepy... Um, Opportunity for surveillance that I you would hope would be rejected in a liberal democracy like the UK.
1: Well, indeed, those those um, trade offs aren't really being properly talked about here. I think the government. I get the sense they're often in denial about this. They, they don't want to acknowledge that there is a risk of privacy. And so I am saying that they've also put in obligations around free speech and privacy into the bill. Mm-hmm. In, a, in, a, in a, you know, they want their cake and to eat it too. So they, they're just going to throw every kind of obligation at them, um, even if they're in themselves okay. contradictory, and just hope that the Ofcom and, and companies can sort it out. It's so worth noting that there's, there's literally hundreds of the duties contained in the bill, but there's also going to be Ofcom who will create codes of conduct, guidance the companies will be expected to follow. So this is all more and more kind of uh, regulatory um, infringement. I think perhaps like, the, the best example in terms of the risk to British consumers is probably when it comes to private messaging. Though
0: mm-hmm. yes, uh, the the bill uh, empowers Ofcom to issue notices to user um, to user uh, services to search for. Uh, illegal content, you know, child sexual exploitation yeah. material, uh, and crucially, you know, there are two words in the bill that says you know to to use accredited um, technology to search private messages for this stuff, uh, and that I, has understandably, I think, very worried um, organisations like Signal and WhatsApp, and again. It's not about social media. Those are covered organizations under under the bill. Um, End-to-end encryption prevents even WhatsApp from or Signal looking at that for that kind of content. Uh, And I don't think it's a surprise that Signal and WhatsApp have uh, suggested that they may leave the UK if this passes uh, which I think is a completely understandable position from their point of view which is uh, they're used by government officials by high-profile celebrities by millions of ordinary citizens um, and to compromise um, the privacy of millions of people around the world because a small European island nation just passed a bill mm-hmm. I think doesn't make much sense for a California based uh, company yeah I mean I'm sure, I'm sure
1: that. I prefer that uh, the UK doesn't pass this kind of uh, mm-hmm. legislation, doesn't set a precedent. I mean, it is quite frightening that there's pretty much no accountability on Ofcom's ability to say, you must now use this piece of software, not even your own piece of software, they can require mm-hmm. you to use some other random piece of software to scan messages. Now, the government's argument on this is, well, you know, the technology either exists or will kind of soon exist. You can do this in a secure way. You know, you just, you just look at the messages before they're sent and therefore they're still encrypted.
0: Well. They say that. Uh, the, the thing, you know, Governments are powerful institutions, but they can't outlaw the laws of mathematics. And you know, mathematicians and cryptographers have not been quiet about this issue and have said repeatedly that this claim is untrue. Unless um, the government somewhere in Whitehall in a basement has actually come up with a completely novel new way to um securely and safely break end-to-end encryption then um i'm I'm left um unconvinced
1: yeah i mean it's it's one of those half pregnant things you're either encrypted or you're not and once you start Mm -hmm. scanning people's messages for any you know no matter how justifiable the purpose you're scanning the messages for once you're scanning them it's no longer end-to-end encrypted you are somebody's looking at the messages yeah
0: yeah.
1: um in some way and and that can't be secure and ultimately as well you've got to think about this that even if they did find a way to somehow you know through encryption still look for certain types of content, which is what they're talking about, you'd still have to then report the user. Mm-hmm. So you'd still have to then uh, have a capacity to trigger some the user's messages being sent on. And and you've just got to say here that one of the reasons why the companies like Signal, like WhatsApp, aren't willing to do this is because they know that there's a lot of authoritarian governments who would like this exact flaw to be mm. in software or to have this power to require scanning for certain things and identification of... of their citizens for sending certain types of messages
0: yeah uh, no one in the kremlin or the chinese government is losing sleep about <laughs> the government considering this piece of legislation it's very worried
1: indeed so the other uh you know we're kind of doing a twitter force here of different uh, kind of policy issues but i think it's important just to bring these all together because uh, these are set often separate conversations mm-hmm. we have well, there's one conversation about stock market listing there's one conversation about competitions one conversation about online safety but i think we're putting together here a broader message and the, the, the next one i kind of want to get your thoughts on was this this um, forthcoming uh, issue or, the, you know, this this live issue in a way, which is, of course, artificial intelligence. Mm. The government put out what I thought was a, initially a very good regulatory statement on AI, that, that they weren't going to jump to create a super AI regulator, that existing regulations, where appropriate, should be enforced in things like the Equality Act or GDPR and, and, and data privacy, you know, all sorts of existing regulators that touch on AI um, should be, you know, properly... Um, Given the expertise to deal with whatever particular harms and, and legal issues show up but we, we don't need some kind of new AI system and then of course here comes Chat GPT and the end of the world is upon us and, mm-hmm. and the mood changes I'm wondering where we think you think we're at when it comes to AI regulation in the UK uh,
0: well th- there's been a lot of uh... Uh, rumbling. You know, we're, we're speaking now uh, to the you know, end of August and the um, this AI summit in November has been announced. So this is uh, this
1: joint UK-US right, yeah. summit to discuss AI In yeah. Bleshley
0: Park. Um, so for, for obvious symbolic reasons, I think. Uh, and uh, yeah, I think it's fair to say that, that the government um, has not been shy about pushing for um, a regulatory approach. There was the white paper published back in March and... Uh, I think you, you correctly point out that it wasn't nearly as heavy-handed as I think a lot of people feared it would be. Especially um, compared to the EU's approach, which yes, is pretty yeah, much... Yeah. You,
1: the, the EU is almost like you have to ask us permission before you start developing AI, rather than saying, we're going to let you develop AI and, and deal with any problems that arise. Yeah,
0: so we, we have, I think, good rhetoric on we don't want to be the heavy hand that we see in Europe. Um, uh, on the other hand... Um, as we've just, you know, the evidence from the, the, the competition bill and the online safety bill is that this is a government that does not hesitate to legislate when it sees a, a risk or a harm. Uh, and I don't worry about robot overlords or living in something like the matrix, but I do worry about there being unintended consequences with AI that is going to panic lawmakers. And it could be deep fakes or misinformation on chat GPT. Um, it could be, you know, uh, uh, malicious bots. It could be a whole host of things. And I, I worry that in those conversations, people are going to forget that AI powers, you know, diagnostic tools for healthcare, uh, driver's car technologies, um, all kinds of interesting, potentially civilization changing
1: things. Better education um, for kids, you know, all yeah. sorts of amazing, like, I I don't know, I just, I just feel like the, the potential upsides for AI is, is huge as much as we talk about the, the risks. I mean, putting aside the kind of almost disprovable, this could be the end of humanity if we get it wrong, um, which seems to be kind of a scare story that's hard to contest, but mm-hmm. also hard to prove.
0: Yeah. Well, on that point, uh, uh, two things. I mean, one is people have been saying this for, for, for ages and um, have yet to be proved right. But secondly, it, we, we live in a globally connected, um, research-distributed world. There are people working on AI all over the world who... Uh, The idea that because uh, the the UK, which is a comparatively small country, decides to be very, very cautious on AI because of risk of um, the singularity or something like that, that is not gonna stop um, (laughs) researchers in, in Asia, Europe, America, all over the world. Uh, and so I think what we need is you know, research cooperation around the world to ensure that you, you know, the risks are being carefully calibrated and considered. Uh, it would be a real shame if um, the potential benefits of AI are hamstrung by you know, Hollywood hypotheticals.
1: Yeah, I think that's an important point to get to. I'm, I'm just kind of thinking in conclusion. So we've gone through where I suppose there's a lot of concerns about tech regulation. I'm going to kind of stepping back um, in what should be our approach to new technologies? What, what, what sh- how can we build a UK that is that is taking a liberalised approach. That you know, if, if we want to be the home of innovation post Brexit, what what do we need to do?
0: Well, I'll just crib on um, one of your previous guests, you know, Adam Thier, right? This this approach of permissionless innovation is one we should embrace. I, I think what we need to change is the government's approach to to, to regulation. Um, all of these different. Uh, new and emerging technologies are are oftentimes born captive into a regulatory environment. Uh, so I think the owners should be on regulate uh, regulators to uh, justify their interventions into markets or inventions. Uh, so I think uh, the the ideal approach um, would be for government to say, look, if you come up with a new gadget, a new drug, a new, uh, invention, you're free to, to, to sell it and to market it, but here's when we will intervene and then for the government to say we intervene to prevent uh, you know, likely catastrophic harms, um, threats to infrastructure, life and limb, those sort of things. Um, that'd be a very different approach to what we have now, but yeah, that's what I'd like to get to.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think we can almost say that that has been the effective approach that's enabled all, all sorts of kind of digital space innovation. So where we have, you know, massive Uh, regression in terms of quality of life in the last few decades is places where you need permission to do something Mm -hmm. before you can Mm -hmm. do it. Mm -hmm. And that's in the physical world. You know, you can't build a house, you can't build a laboratory space, um, you can't build infrastructure without going through an extensive um, process of trying to get permission from the government to do it. it, It's very precautionary and preventive um, Mm -hmm. as a premise. Mm -hmm. Also, Mm -hmm. if you kind of compare that to how the online space has worked, you know, Mark Zuckerberg didn't need to ask permission to set up Facebook. Um, uh, Sergey and Larry didn't need permission to set up Google. They could just go and do it. Now, that's not to say that it's been totally harmless, but the point is that if you want the innovation, you can't strangle it at birth. You need to enable it to develop, identify the issues and, and address them as they come up.
0: Right, exactly. And you also need to account for that there's going to be a learning process along the way. You know, the, the the first cars do not have seatbelts and airbags. Um, and... Uh, we learned along the way that those might be worthwhile uh, things to. I don't know. <laughs> you
1: see, there's, there's that economic research that encourages uh, oh, more. You know, that encourages more dangerous driving. I don't know. Whether you've, uh, oh, have Seat okay. seatbelts seat in particular, that um, it leads to fewer deaths more accidents. Oh, anyway, I see what you mean. yeah. The, the, but, well, the, the other, I didn't the consequences of regulation, but I, I, I'm sure. pro seatbelt, Don't worry. Sure, you know, okay. Put on um, your seatbelt when you get in a car. Well, the,
0: the early years of, of, of flight were very dangerous. I mean, yeah. there's And and I think that, uh, but people who are willing to try new. Uh, technologies are almost by definition risk-takers, you know, you do have to be a particular, the sort of person that gets into the first airplane is, it's a non-random selection of people who do these sort of things, yeah, yeah. Um, and, but those are sort of people we want to be attracted to the United Kingdom, because we want people to come here and tinker and to play with new, new toys and inventions, um, but unfortunately at the moment I don't think it's the kind of country that it could be in that respect.
1: Well, on that slightly pessimistic <laughs> note, I suppose, thank you so much. Matthew Feeney from the Centre for Policy Studies for joining me for the IEA podcast this week. If you are enjoying the podcast, please do subscribe on your chosen podcast provider. And if you'd like to learn more about the IEA and our work, just visit iea.org.uk.